Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe uh, tomorrow is Friday and the month of May is almost winding down. I will tell you this right now, folks. The book I've been discussing with you all for quite some time, uh, Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher, has been a phenomenal one. And this podcast um, episode is going to be the epilogue, or I should say the the uh, conclusion to Paul Revere's ride. Nonetheless, it's been an amazing ride because we have learned so much about Paul Revere that was probably not taught before from uh, past generations. But here we are in the present learning about Paul Revere and coming to a conclusion that this uh, ride of his was not a one-man show. It was made out to be a ride a one-man ride for so many years, really in large part because of who Paul Revere was in terms of a name. But we have we have uncovered lots of uh, hidden truths that his uh, midnight ride, was, for one, was not a one-man show. There were multiple uh, riders. Obviously, Dr. Samuel Prescott and uh, William Dawes joined Revere, but so many other riders were going in various directions, various other directions, warning people from north to south, east to west, throughout Massachusetts, letting the people know that, hey, the regulars are coming. Okay, the regulars are coming. What does that mean? It means that it's up to you to decide how you want to take that warning and defend not only yourself, but your townspeople around you. It's, you know, Paul Revere's warning, as I had mentioned from an earlier podcast, it was almost like the same phrase that President John F. Kennedy stated in his uh, inauguration speech back in 1961. Ask not, I say to my fellow um, Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Paul Revere's message in 1775 was very simple. Ask not what I can do for you, but ask what you can do with the message I give you. In other words, I've given you a warning, but now it's up to you, my fellow brethren, meaning my fellow people, townspeople, to take up arms against the mightiest empire in the world, and not only just defend yourselves as individuals, but defend yourselves as a greater um, as a greater force. In this case, being the colony of Massachusetts. So, in this episode, our final episode to Paul Revere's ride by David Hackett Fisher, we're going to be discussing the fate of the participants. Fate of the participants. That should mean that there was more than one uh, key player. Uh, whose fate that we will be learning about. Of course, when we hear about the word fate, more often than not, fate can be associated as being bad. Well, I will tell you all this. In learning about the fate of the participants, I learned that there was good, and I learned that there was not good. So look at the term fate as being a double-edged sword. Fate has its good advantages, and fate itself has its disadvantages. So our first lead-off question for this uh, final episode to Paul Revere's ride will be the following. 
Did many of the men from both sides, whom fought at Lexington and Concord, die in the in the ensuing war which followed? Okay, ensuing war. The American Revolutionary War. Keep in mind, folks, that April 19, 1775, it wasn't officially just yet the American Revolutionary War, but after shots were fired, a.k.a. shots heard around the world, it might as well have become the Revolutionary War. But we must keep in mind that between April and June of 1775, the war itself is concentrated solely in Massachusetts. So the answer to the question is the following being, did many of the men from both sides who fought at Lexington and Concord die in the ensuing war which followed? I'd have to say that's a yes. The majority of these men whom survived at Lexington and Concord would be dead within two months. Okay. What was the next battle that occurred within the two-month time span after Lexington and Concord? It was in Massachusetts, right on the outskirts of Boston. But we must remember in 1775, Boston is like its own little island because there's only one way in and one way out, the Boston Neck or the uh, Isthmus. The uh, battle that occurred uh, two months after Concord and Lexington was uh, Bunker Hill, or some people refer to it as Breed's Hill. So let's just keep in mind that those who survived at Lexington and Concord would, uh, many of them would tragically meet their fate at Bunker Hill. Which side uh, won at Bunker Hill, and did victory come at a huge price? Okay. You know, we often think that when a battle is fought in the, victor in the side that comes away victorious, um, did everything right and and whatever was done wrong was done on the opposing side. Well, I do know this much about Bunker Hill is that um, General Thomas Gage, he still is um, the, the uh, general or the chief commanding officer of the British um, operation forces. He um, coordinates a plan that will transport soldiers from Boston Harbor up to a hill known as Bunker Hill. Why would you transport troops from water? Of course, it was the only way to get to Bunker Hill, which, which is, that's a logical thing there, but why would you send your men up a hill knowing that, that there was a greater likelihood that half or three-fourths of them might not even survive. But, of course, General Gage is still very convinced that maybe the men whom are up on the hill, being the patriots, are not going to know how to uh, defend their territory. <laughs> well, if they held their ground strong at Concord and delivered a decisive blow to the king's army, why would we think differently now? Well, to sum it up, um, there were three assaults on Bunker Hill. The commanding officer for the, um, for the Massachusetts um, militia, or what we might even refer to as the Interim Continental Army, 
was of Dr. Joseph Warren. How could a doctor all of a sudden be a, a commander? Remember, folks, Dr. Joseph Warren, it, along with Paul Revere, were one of the very few men whom were involved in every activity, or a committee, rather, I should say, um, during this uh, time of uh, crisis. Dr. Warren ha is pretty much, uh, by now, in, of uh, June 1775, and just before then, he has become public enemy number one uh, for the British. And the reason for that is because, for one, Dr. Warren is ubiquitous, meaning he's seen everywhere, but two, he is uh, an ardent patriot whom is giving speeches left and right, rallying townspeople um, to stay the course, to uh, stand up for what they believe in that is right in, in uh, fighting the injustices that have been brought upon by an empire who has lost... Um, who has lost its uh, touch, in other words, has lost its um, true connection to her subjects. All she's interested in is in what benefits her, and as for her subjects, you know, of course, King George III by now has called, his, has called the 13 colonies um, his ungrateful subjects, but this is really a state of turmoil. But nonetheless, Dr. Joseph Warren is the leading commander, and he instructs the... Uh, his uh, forces to fire at the British at about the 50-yard mark once uh, the enemy has made about 50 yards to them to fire. So after two frontal assaults, we are mowing down uh, the king's troops, left and right. Okay, after the second assault, wouldn't you think it would be smart to stop fighting, save what's left of your forces, regroup, and perhaps fight for another day. Well, to me, that would be the logical choice, but when you are General Gage and you are desperate for some kind of redemption that you can get after being um, humiliated and conquered, I guess you probably will do whatever it takes, even if it means knowing that you could risk more of your own men's lives. Well, a third assault did happen. And to sum up the uh, question here, the British did um, win. They won at Bunker Hill, but this victory came at a huge price. The reason why the British prevailed in the end was because American forces ran out of ammunition. You know, ammunition doesn't last forever. And there does come a point in time where you ultimately will run out of ammunition. Is that a good thing? Uh, no. But can it be a bad thing? Yes, it can be a bad thing because that's what pretty much happened at Concord where the British were running low on ammunition and barely made it back alive to Charlestown. So, yes, the British launched three assaults. But this victory came at a huge price because at, at day's end, uh, General Gage would lose a quarter of his army. Okay. Let's talk fractions here, folks. 100% is a whole. What's If you lose one-fourth of your army, that's 25%. That doesn't seem like a lot, but I'll give you the number as to uh, how many regulars were killed or wounded on June 17th of 1775. How about nearly 1,100? That is quite a decimation, knowing that the only reason you prevailed in, was at the very end due to the fact that the uh, Americans 
ran low on ammunition. And it could be fair to say that had they had maybe another 300 men that might have, um, that could have saved the day right there in terms of 300 more soldiers having ammunition to uh, fire upon to um, eliminate what was left of the of uh, Britain's third and final assault. But this victory came at a huge price, especially in large part because, um, you know, they lost over close to 1,100 men. You don't recover from something like that. 74 British officers officers whom had marched to Lexington and Concord would meet their fate between April and June. 33 of these 74 officers were killed or badly wounded in the fighting around Boston. I did the math, and you take 33 into 74, that equals 0.445, or uh, by rounding it off percentage-wise, that's about 45% of officer casualties or woundings. That's not close to half, but it is very close nonetheless to for the British um, officers as a group to lose 45% between April and June. That's a huge number. I would think the British would have um, perhaps understood that um, that they had gotten themselves into a bad mess, that they had gotten themselves into a fight where they were fighting uh, mosquitoes whom, um, in their eyes, maybe didn't have uh, recognize their own boundaries, but mosquitoes whom had a purpose, whom had a, a vision, whom were unified in their cause to wreak havoc on the mightiest empire in the world, not just England, but England representing the elephant. As for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith, whom saved British forces from further discourse within Lexington, he, got, he would get promoted to brigadier. As for uh, Lord Hugh Percy, you know, uh, he would go on to fight at New York. So he did have um, more of a career, not just a career in the uh, British uh, military, but in terms of action uh, during this war. But it was during New York, uh, the New York campaign, where Lord Hugh Percy was would become very instrumental in overseeing the largest surrender of American troops at Fort Washington, or what is now Fort Washington. Of course, the uh, New York campaign was... Um, was very disastrous for General Washington and his forces. That's a, a different topic for another time, but it was a, a very disastrous uh, campaign. But shortly after 1776, uh, Lord Hugh Percy became very upset over how the war itself was conducted to where he resigned and returned to England in 1777. How ironic in 1777, the same year he, Lord Hugh Percy returns to England, that's the same year that the French are now uh, persuaded, thanks in large part to Benjamin Franklin, to come join on the side of the Americans, most notably after um, scoring a big victory at Saratoga, New York, where uh, British General John Burgoyne's forces were defeated um, at the hands of um, Horatio Gates and Benedict Arnold.
What happened uh, to the British warship HMS Somerset, which had blocked Paul Revere's route across the Charles River? Uh, this I found very interesting, and I think you all will find it interesting too. She was wrecked by a nor'easter. You know, those of you who live in New England, or just in general, if you know what a nor'easter is, it's one of those uh, powerful storms that uh, can bring either snow, ice, it can um, bring um, rains, uh, heavy rains, it can um, result in um, heavy, gusty winds to where, um, of course, in modern day times, it can result in uh, power outages, um, that where blackouts could be for days or close to a week. So basically, nor'easters are powerful uh, type storms that can um, that are not confined to just uh, producing one kind of um, disaster. But anyways, the HMS uh, Somerset was uh, wrecked by a nor nor'easter on November second, seventeen seventy eight. And it turns out that her guns were salvaged and fixed. In other words, they were were repaired, but whom whom went about repairing them? That happened to be none other than Paul Revere himself. Isn't it fair to say, folks, that Paul Revere is ubiquitous? He's everywhere. Not only has he been behind the scenes and um, and uh, coordinating um, post rider um, or what we would call the uh, courier riders' um, plans and missions to uh, warn the townspeople about the regulars coming, but yet he has time to uh, fix up a, um, a British uh, warship. Now, uh, what became of uh, Dr. Joseph Warren after Lexington and Concord? I know I mentioned um, some of this earlier, but uh, he is nonetheless a, a very important uh, figure to uh, learn about. And I've said it earlier from a previous podcast, but I'll say it again. If those of you who did not know anything about Dr. Joseph Warren until uh, recently with this podcast series I've done, I strongly recommend reading Christian D. Spina's Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's uh, Forgotten uh, Hero. And I uh, had done a podcast on that uh, last year, so for those of you who are new to my podcasts, check out... Um, the one on Dr. Joseph Warren. It is very well worth learning, um, listening to. Uh, but as for uh, what became of Dr. Joseph Warren after Lexington and Concord, he was elected president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress to getting appointed general of Massachusetts troops. Like two months earlier, from April 1775, where Dr. Warren had risked his life at Lexington and Concord, uh, after all, he was uh, by General William Heath's side. He repeated the same course of action two months later, on June 17th of 1775 at Bunker Hill, where he commanded the troops, only to lose his life on the third and final British assault. He was, um, he wasn't just shot, folks. Dr. Warren was, um, shot in the head. I'm sure some of you are wondering why, why am I saying this? Well, Dr. Warren was not afraid to risk his life. He knew that there would be a chance that at some point his life 
would come to an end by the enemy, but he was not afraid to risk defending freedom, defending liberty, the pursuit of happiness that that not only Dr. Warren himself was seeking, but the people around him whom he catered to, not only as a doctor, but just everyday, ordinary people. Well, when the British shot him, one British officer said that killing said something to the effect that killing Dr. Joseph Warren was like killing... Um, they said, the officer said that killing Dr. Warren was like was like the equivalent of killing uh, somewhere like a hundred or more uh, leaders just as powerful as he was. In other words, they thought that by killing Dr. Warren that this um, conflict would come to an end, but of course little did they realize that this wasn't all about Dr. Joseph Warren. You still had men like Paul Revere, John Adams, um, Samuel Adams, and John Hancock, and countless others whom would have been, who would have been willing to have taken Dr. Warren's place. But uh, sadly, Dr. Warren, um, he wasn't just shot, um, but I can tell you this much. Uh, he was, um, even after he was shot, he was bayoneted repeatedly. Um, it was the British, it was the uh, regular's way of wanting to stick it to him. I'm not trying to be gruesome, folks. I'm just trying to tell you all about the realities and the fate of the participants and the sacrifices they made. And we should keep in mind this too, folks, that uh, even after this battle at Bunker Hill, it took about three to five days to uh, bury the dead for both sides. You know, people just didn't say, oh, we'll let the bodies rot. No, they had to, um, because even a dead body, can leave a foul odor. So it took at least close to a week at best to um, bury the dead at Bunker Hill. But nonetheless, Dr. Joseph Warren's death was viewed as a national tragedy. Paul Revere was so... um, He was beside himself when Dr. Warren died that it took more than a month it would take, it wouldn't be until, I believe, March of 1776 where Revere and uh, members of Dr. Warren's family were able to locate his body and actually give him a more proper burial. Well, it turns out that uh, Paul Revere and his wife Rachel named one of their sons in honor of Dr. Joseph Warren. His name was Joseph Warren Revere. What about uh, Captain John Parker, who was the commander of the Lexington Militia? Did he live past 1775? No, he didn't. Uh, Did he fight at Bunker Hill, and if so, did he lose his life there? No, he didn't fight at Bunker Hill, but he became severely ill to where he could not... um, participate at Bunker Hill. He dies at the age of 46 on September 17th of 1775. Many of Parker's uh, company, aka militiamen, would lose their lives during the war. And here's a bonus right here. 
the last survivor of the Lexington Militia Company lived to be 96 years old and he died in 1854. His name was Jonathan Harrington. He was a, a boy fifer. In other words, he was a part of what we would call the fife and drums. You know, if any of you all, you know, when we listen to music from the American Revolution, it's very, um, it's entertaining. It's, um, somehow it's uplifting in a way. But the music that was conducted during that time was not uh, celebratory. It was a way to keep the men in line for the men to understand where they needed to be positioned on a battlefield and when to, um, and when to uh, change up, um, what do you call it, positions. So it is hard to think that the last um, survivor of the Lexington militia who um, was at uh, Lexington Common on April 19, 1775, the day that shots were heard around the world, would live another 70, almost another 80 years and lived to be 96 years old. So something tells me, folks, that this fellow would have had to have been 17 or 18 years of age by 1775, meaning that he would have been born either in 1757 or 1758. And to think that when he was born during that time, um, Jonathan Harrington, he was born when um, the French and Indian War was going on. I believe it's fair to say, folks, that even um, young people between the ages of 15 and 20, most notably by 1775, are no strangers to war. And children, folks, you know, children at this time did not have the luxury, or let alone the luxuries like a lot of children have today, depending on what part of the world they're in. But let's just keep in mind that, that not everyone had the same kind of luxuries and freedoms that past generations did not have access to, most notably um, children of the American Revolution era who were um, involved in um, fighting not only for their um, country, but fighting for the freedoms that could be secured for future generations to have. Did John Hancock live to see the Continental Army defeat the British Come 1781, the surrender at Yorktown, including the Treaty of Paris in 1783, which had officially ended the American Revolutionary War. Yes, he did. He lived to the age of 56. 56 doesn't, you know, seem to be that old, especially by today's standards, but uh, in his time, that was considered old age. And how ironic, too, at the same time that uh, John Hancock, although he died in 1793, he did get to, he lived to see George Washington become our nation's first president, being four years earlier in 1789. And he also lived to see the uh, U.S. Constitution be created, uh, which that w had been done six years earlier in 1787. So it is fair to say that John Hancock lived, um, lived to see um, not only our securing independence from England, but he lived to see um, our, um, our fellow brethren come together to um, 
save our country from a fledgling government that was no longer compatible, being the Articles of Confederation, to establish um, a better system of governing. So he got to see uh, not only George Washington become president, not, he not only got to see the Constitution be uh, created, but he also lived to see democracy exist. What happened uh, to the horse riders, most notably Dr. Samuel Prescott and William Dawes, who each rode with Paul Revere, in alerting countryside of British movements? Dr. Prescott went about becoming a surgeon in the Continental Army, along with joining a crew of a New England privateer ship. However, sadly, uh, Dr. Uh, Prescott met, met a tragic uh, fate. He was captured by the Royal Navy and held prisoner in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where he sadly died in 1777. Dr. Prescott, along with many other fellow um, American people, whether they were soldiers or just ordinary, everyday people, died before the war itself ever ended. They lived to see shots heard around the world, but they didn't live, get to live to see the final end result. But yet they were a part of making the greater sacrifice. As for William Dawes, he didn't participate in any further events at Lexington and Concord after having fallen off his horse, but he did join the army in the siege of Boston. He fought at Bunker Hill. He worked in the provisions business. He died in 1799 at the age of 53. What did uh, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, Elbridge Gerry, and John Brooks share in common after the Revolutionary War ended? All four of these men became governors of Massachusetts. Well, it's fair to say that these four men obviously didn't miss, miss out on anything right there. How did uh, Woburn's major, Loami Baldwin, fare after war's end? Remember, he's the one that came up with that uh, phrase for um, Miriam's Corner called the Deadly Curve. Well, Loami Baldwin um, went on to have a successful career. He uh, became America's first professional to topographical engineer. And a topographical engineer is um, someone who studies the forms and features of land surfaces. And by 1794, he helped oversee the building, or I should say the construction, of the Middlesex Canal between the Charles and Merrimack Rivers. The Middlesex Canal became the first canal in America, or let alone the first major canal in America. So, you know, we tend to think of the Erie Canal as the first major canal in America. And yes, there's no question about the Erie Canal being a vital canal linking the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes. But in 1794, the first major canal in America is right in Massachusetts, the Middlesex, connecting the Charles and Merrimack Rivers. I also found this interesting about Loami Baldwin. I don't think many of you all would know it, but I'm going to share it. He developed what, was, what would become the Baldwin Apple. 
an apple of Eastern America. So when you go to the grocery store next time, folks, and you buy um, a Baldwin apple, you can thank um, Major Loami Baldwin from the American Revolution. Many whom uh, fought at Lexington and Concord went back to the farms that had been worked by previous family generations, but their lives weren't ever the same. And I believe how very true that is. You know, war, war is not a game. This wasn't cowboys and Indians. Not that cowboys and Indians wasn't um, a game, but this wasn't um, the type of... Um, situation where once someone was shot they just fell to the ground and that was it you know if you're a soldier it's fair to say that you are going to see people around you die in front of you and yet you will ask yourself this question why did I get spared but yet three or four of my fellow comrades around me didn't that's a question that will probably haunt many of these uh, men who uh, fought at Lexington and to make, and we must point out too that there are there is no such thing in 1775 as post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome or disorder. So, for all we know, there could have been men whom were not right psychologically after this, um, after the battles at Lexington and Concord. But at the same time, there was little that could have been done for uh, psychological treatment either. So. Many of these men had to live with the pains and scars for the rest of their lives, but yet they had to go on with their lives as best as they could. Our next question is the following. Uh, when did Margaret Kemble Gage, you, you all have heard me mention her name quite a bit, when did she get sent back to England? She was sent back in the summer of 1775, I'm not exactly sure when, but something tells me it probably was after Bunker Hill. That's my guess. She sailed along a ship called the Charming Nancy. Okay. Charming Nancy sounds like a nice name for a ship, but um, how about this? Um, the ship that she was on, being Charming Nancy, had 60 widows and orphans including 170 wounded British soldiers. War is obviously impacting both sides here, folks. Margaret Kemble Gage, she and her husband do have children of their own, but now she is facing a, a very grim reality of her own, knowing that she's surrounded by multiple widows who have lost their husbands, and children without fathers, and knowing that 170 wounded British soldiers, who's to say that maybe half of them won't even survive? Prior to Lexington and Concord, her marriage to uh, General Thomas Gage had been solid. But after shots heard round the world, in the aftermath of Lexington and Concord, General Gage ordered his wife away from him probably fair to say that their marriage was never the same, given many historians are truly convinced that Margaret herself provided Dr. Joseph Warren with top-secret information about British seizing munitions, or their mission being that of seizing munitions from Concord. 
The victory for the British at Bunker Hill, as we know, came at a bad price, considering they lost nearly 1,100 men. But General Thomas Gage's reputation suffered greatly. He had a falling out with many of his officers, not only just within the inner, inner circle, but below, whom refused to obey him. It's one thing to be a general, folks, but if you have officers within your circle and below you whom are not obeying you, that to me is bad. That to me could lead to mutiny, it could lead to revolt, it could lead to um, unprecedented violence from within uh, the system. So, does General Gage get replaced? He does. In October of 1775, he leaves America and never returns. But after coming back to England, he was estranged from his wife. They were still married. Of course, we must remember, even in the 18th century, divorces are unheard of. Divorces would have been frowned upon in high English society. So it's probably fair to say that Margaret and Thomas appeared to be happy on the outside in public, but in private, they were the complete opposite. It's a good example of what we often refer to or hear, um, the phrase being so close but so far away. Thomas Gage died in 1787. He was probably in his late 60s or close to 70. On the other hand, Margaret died in 1824. She lived to, be lived to be right around 90 years old. So to think that Margaret outlived her husband by about 37 years. Do I think, if somebody were to ask me, Kirk, do you think Margaret Kemble Gage was a hero? Yes, I do believe she's a hero. She is a forgotten hero. But she um, sacrificed her own life. After all, Margaret wasn't just so much an American, she had uh, divided loyalties in her family. After all, it's fair to say that Margaret was looking after her family that um, wanted separation from England. Margaret probably saw suffering from outside her family. That is, people who were persecuted ruthlessly all in the name of their ideologies. After all, I should point out that New Jersey was very loyalist. So Margaret's family, being that of mixed loyalties, I don't know if I'd say being in the minority, but one of mixed loyalties, it's either make or break on where you stand, not just within your family, but within a greater community. So yes, Margaret made a huge sacrifice and I believe we owe Margaret a huge gratitude of debt for providing Dr. Joseph Warren with not just with top secret information, but information that allowed him, along with Paul Revere and other um, men who may not have had the same distinguishing rank in terms of name status like Paul Revere, to make the necessary sacrifices to in order to go about alerting the towns in and around Boston so that men could um, make the sacrifices by taking up arms against the crown by coming to not only just Lexington but to Concord 
where they would lay everything on the line on the day of April 19, 1775, where the shots were heard round the world. Did Paul Revere return to his primary line of work after the war ended? Uh, okay, folks, what trade profession is he in? Is he a coopersmith or a silversmith? He's a silversmith. His silversmith shop, or I should say practice, expanded greatly from custom work, being that of individual pieces, to regular production, meaning the same materials produced all the time, kind of like an early version of a, an assembly line. But besides um, being a successful silversmith, he went about studying the science of metallurgy. Anybody know what metallurgy is? It's a science or practice of uh, studying uh, properties of uh, metals. Revere also became the first American manufacturer to roll copper sheets on a large scale. Boy, he really knows how to expand his trade, all right. Paul Revere's copper <laughs> covered the top section or part of the new Massachusetts State House. The copper that he produced also um, was found on the bottom of a famous frigate called the Constitution, a.k.a. Old Ironsides. He also went about making um, boiler plates for Robert Fulton's steamboats. And those of you who listen to my series on the Erie Canal, or the Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation, uh, Robert Fulton was the first um, to um, create the uh, steamboat, and his steamboat was known as the Clermont, which traveled from, um, from uh, New York City up to Albany. And you could uh, that was about a 150-mile um, trip, um, round trip each way. So, yes, Paul Revere um, played a big part in um, seeing to it that Robert Fulton uh, got off on the right track. Revere also um, made uh, cannon for forts and uh, warships benefiting the new federal government. So Paul Revere has uh, really... He's, he's done more than just made a name for himself leading up to Lexington and Concord. He's also making a name for himself in the post-revolutionary war era, and it should not go unnoticed by any means whatsoever. Did Paul Revere remain active in politics after war's end? Yes. He played a vital part behind scene to it that the federal constitution got ratified considering how unstable America had become during the post-war era. Was Paul Revere a delegate to the Constitutional Convention in 1787? No. But that didn't mean he found other ways to be involved. He um, was very involved behind the scenes to where he was able to um, get people um, whom attended the Massachusetts Convention and supporting and um, debating the Constitution to vote in favor of it. And I'm, and I'm sure some of you are wondering, how was America unstable during the post-war era? Well, you had a fledgling government, the Articles of Confederation, where 13 states pretty much ran the show. The uh, central government was uh, frowned upon and pretty much had l little to no powers at all. 
And then you have rebellions and skirmishes where um, it's pretty much um, a matter of time before the existing system of government collapses to where there will be anarchy. So this post-war era is very unsettling. And thank heavens Paul Revere was concerned enough about it to where he went about supporting the uh, idea of having a better system of government being our federal constitution. In the, er in the early years of our republic's existence, had Whig leaders from the American Revolutionary War era, did they become divided into opposing political parties? Yes. It turns out that Paul Revere was a Federalist. And let me ask you this. Do Federalists favor a strong or weak centralized national government? They favor a strong centralized national government that has many broad powers. Of course, when I think of um, Federalists, I often think of Alexander Hamilton. And on the other hand, when I think of the Anti-Federalists, I think of Thomas Jefferson. What happened on uh, May 10th of on May 10th, 1818? Paul Revere sadly passed away at the age of 83. Now, to have lived to have been 83 years of age at that time is very unheard of. That's how old Thomas Jefferson lived to be when he died in 1826. But Paul Revere lived to be they lived to be aged lived to be at the age of 83, and when he died, very few of our nation's forefathers were still left living by this time. Can anybody tell me whom was alive in 1818, whom had signed from, from the era of 1776 when the Declaration of Independence was signed? I'll give you uh, some choices. We'll give you five. Choice A, Thomas Jefferson. Choice B, John Adams. Choice C, Charles Carroll. Choice D, all of the above. The answer is all of the above. Now, I know all of you know who Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are, but most of us probably don't know who Charles Carroll was. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He came from Maryland. He was the only signer out of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence who was of Roman Catholic faith. He was also probably considered to be the wealthiest person whom signed the document. He would also become the last signer to die. He outlived Thomas Jefferson and John Adams by six years. As we all know, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died on July 4th, 1826, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence was signed. Neither one of them knew that the other had died before. Thomas Jefferson died on the morning of 1826, and historians do believe that his last words were, is today the 4th. Did I live to see July 4th? And his servant, who was looking after him, said, yes, you did live to see the 4th. Historians know John Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams did have a fallout over um, 
their political differences, especially when uh, Jefferson had defeated him in 1800. But thank heavens, another uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence uh, was able to uh, reunite the two of them, being Dr. Benjamin Rush from uh, Pennsylvania. Rush died in 1813, but fortunate, fortunately enough, he was able to reunite these two um, pillars before he passed away. And it turns out that Jefferson and Adams wrote regularly to one another to where um, they may have had the best um, relationship in terms of two ex-presidents for their time, two former presidents at their time. But Charles Carroll um, lived, died in 1832. He lived to be 95 years old. John Adams was 90, just shy of his 91st birthday. But let's just keep in mind, folks, that when Paul Revere died in 1818, only three signers to the Declaration of Independence were still left living. And to think John Adams was the last of his generation from Massachusetts who died. Um, his cousin Samuel Adams died in 1803 at age 81. A good portion of the road that uh, Paul Revere himself traveled, traveled along for his midnight ride is now a national park. The anniversary of his ride, including Lexington and, and Concord battles, still remains a, a public holiday called Patriots Day in Massachusetts and Maine. Why Maine? Well, remember, folks... Uh, Maine, before it became a state in 1820, uh, was considered Massachusetts. So let's keep that in mind. Well, here we are at the end of this uh, podcast uh, series. Remember I had mentioned early on in the series about John Singleton Copley, that uh, famous um, painter? He painted a, a multitude of... Um, of uh, well-known peoples in their portraits. He even did a painting of uh, Samuel Adams. He did one of um, Margaret Kemble Gage and her husband, uh, General Thomas Gage. What made Paul Revere different in his portrait that uh, Copley had done? Revere wasn't wearing top-of-the-line clothing. He was w wearing the clothing of a silversmith. But remember in that portrait, Paul Revere is holding his uh, left hand by his uh, chin, and the side of his face is red. The teapot he's holding in the other hand is unfinished business work, but there's a little flicker of light on that teapot. That little light represented what was left of uh, hope when all seemed lost, because the black, there's a huge, it's all black in the back of the portrait. The black represents darkness, there is a dark cloud surrounding Revere, keeping him from perhaps achieving what he wants to achieve. Revere, with his hand and his chin, deciding how to go about tackling the next task of my unfinished teapot. But Copley's portrait of Paul Revere represented beginnings of unfinished work. But Revere's work becomes a finished product when the townspeople respond to his calling by taking up arms against the mother country. Okay, so here I am finished. So by the time he uh, goes out 
and warns the people he's already finished the work on this teapot. Or who knows, maybe he didn't finish it. The bottom line is, is that whatever job was left unfinished at that moment in time, he found a way to finish it. And that was through means of um, not just a warning, but a calling, a message, a, a message or a, that was seen as an inspiration of hope. Yes, the regulars are coming, but what are you going to do about it? I'm giving you the ammunition in terms of a warning. It's up to you to follow my um, words and do what's necessary to stand up, not only for, for yourself, but to rally the whole, pe- the whole community, rally the, all the towns to send men into Lexington, send them to Concord, send them wherever it's necessary to wreak havoc on that mighty empire. Let it be known that an elephant, yes, it might be tall, it might be powerful, but an elephant cannot always boss her subjects around. And when her subjects get kicked around and stomped around, they're going to retaliate. And that's what the Mosquito did. Paul Revere was the leader of the Mosquitoes. General Gage may have been the leader of the uh, British military, meaning that Gage himself could have been that elephant. But the elephant was wounded, not just on battlefield, but he was wounded over the fact that he had... um, sent his wife away, that when he returned to England, that his marriage was estranged. It was, in other words, Paul Revere, it wasn't just Paul Revere as the victor. The greater community of Massachusetts was the victor. How so? Communication from bottom to top. And when you communicate from the bottom to the top, everyone's voice is heard, everyone makes the the proper sacrifices, everyone comes away knowing that they laid everything on the line by um, sacrificing what was just and necessary to make it known that, hey, we are serious, we are for real, and we are willing to go head to toe with you, which is what happened on April the 19th, 1775, the day that shots were heard round the world, and it was also a moment in time that, that pretty much was one that um, the message was that there's no going back. In other words, we're no longer subjects. We are becoming subjects whose mission is to become free, independent. We are entitled to inalienable rights of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Patrick Henry said it so well that year in 1775, I do not know what course others shall take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. I believe that's what Paul Revere was um, trying to convey when he said the regulars are coming. In other words, do you want liberty or death? If you want liberty, you're going to have to fight for it. But don't don't allow yourself to get walked over. Stand up. Take risk it all. If it means losing your life, know that you paid the right price. Folks, we have our freedoms today because of what happened, not just in 1775, but from the uh, war itself. Freedom's not free. 
but please don't take it for granted. Thank you for allowing me to um, share with you this um, book on Paul Revere. And I look forward to being back on the air again at some point here soon with another, um, with another uh, journey. So keep on fastening your seatbelts because uh, the next uh, journey will be just as good as the last one. Thank you again to all my listeners. And for those of you who know of people who want a podcast, you just tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Thank you once again. Take care for now.